morning, everyone. My name's Phil. Uh, if I've not met you, um, I'm one of the assistant pastors here. I'd love to say hello afterwards over coffee, so do stick around. Let me pray as we dig into this passage. Heavenly Father, we pray would you help us this morning to grow as people who, who have stronger hope in Jesus, more evident hope in Jesus, and who are ready to tell of that hope when asked about it. Please would you encourage us and build us up this morning and equip us for your service. Amen. If you were to ask those closest to you today, would they say that you are a hopeful person? And if so, what would they say that they think your hope is based on? As they look at your life, are you hopeful? What is that hope based on? Now, being hopeful doesn't mean that you're cheerful all the time. Please don't mishear me as saying that. Um, you can have a hope that keeps you going and still be very up and down emotionally, and I'm probably in that camp myself. The key indicator of hope is whether you keep sticking with a particular course, whether that's a project or a relationship or a, a whole lifestyle in, in the Christian's case, and a whole set of beliefs, because you are confident of a positive outcome. You stick with it because you are confident of a positive outcome. And Peter assumes that Christians will demonstrate that kind of hope. In our passage, he's, he's still teasing out how we should live out our identity and calling from chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10, um, where he says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. The people who have been shown mercy through Jesus Christ and brought together to declare his praises, God's praises, because he brought us out of darkness. And in chapter 3, in verses 15 to 16, you'll notice that the focus is very similar to much of last week's passage. It's about winning over people who don't believe in Jesus and who oppose us through our speech, through our conduct, because of who we are as God's chosen people. But unlike last week's passage, Peter's broadened out the focus to all believers in verse 8. It's not just about specific people relating to specific authorities. It's now about all Christians. And at the heart of this passage is this really big assumption in verse 15, that our hope will be clear for all to see, both in the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and in the way that we do good to people who dislike us. Our hope will be clear. That's what Peter's assuming. Now, for many of us at the moment, I think we're either struggling or we're at least pretty worn down and we're feeling that life is hard. And it's possible that our hope has become shaky. We're all prone to wavering, after all. And so the Christian hope might not be so evident in our lives for that reason. 
for some of us, it's, it's possible that our hope is in other things more than it is in Jesus. And that will play out in the way that we live as well. And so I want to start with reasons for hope that Peter gives us, taking us back to the, the core of our Christian hope. And then I want to build out from there. So firstly, in verses 18 to 22, we're going to see how secure the Christian hope in Christ is. Then in verses 8 to 17, we'll explore how to live that hope out. And then finally, we'll think a little bit about explaining that hope to others when asked. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're just exploring, if you're just observing this morning, um, we're really glad you're here. You could ask yourself this question as you're listening. Do I have a hope that is comparable to the one Peter is talking about? Do I have a hope that is comparable to the one Peter is talking about? So firstly, what is the hope that the Christian has? Verse 18 spells, out, spells it out really succinctly if you look down. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That is, instead of being lost in the darkness of sin and ignorance, at home in the world, but foreigners as far as God is concerned, exiles, not a part of his kingdom, instead of living an empty way of life, enslaved to evil desires, always chasing after satisfaction, but never quite getting a firm hold on it, instead, we have been brought to God and into the light of his overwhelming love and kindness. We no longer face the condemnation we deserve for our malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, things that Peter lists in chapter 2, verse 1. And we no longer dread God's righteous anger at human debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, idolatry, things that he lists in chapter 4, verse 3. Because the only truly righteous person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, suffered once for all time for the sins of unrighteous people like me and you. He was put to death in our place, Peter says. So we can be confident that we are forgiven, accepted, chosen, cherished even by God. More than that, we share in Jesus' new resurrection life. We saw that in um, chapter 1, verse 3, a life that will continue into eternity. An eternity where we will inherit a new heaven and earth that will never perish or spoil or fade, where there will be no more suffering or crying or mourning or pain. And if you've been at our evening gatherings the last two weeks, You'll have been reminded that the joy and security and intimacy of human marriage at its best is just the palest shadow or reflection of the joy and intimacy and security that we will experience with Jesus in eternity. 
So we have a hope that is awesome and eternal. And although verses um, 19 to 22 in our passage are confusing, I think Peter added them to boost our confidence in how secure that hope is. In them, Peter is showing how Christ has triumphed over all powers that oppose God's kingdom, and particularly spiritual powers. That's certainly where his focus comes to rest in verse 22. And I think he still has the same focus in verses 19 to 21. And it's worth saying here that there are various interpretations of these verses. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to insist that mine is the definitive one by any stretch. But this is what seemed most convincing to me. You'll notice that Peter talks about the days of Noah. In, and in Genesis 6, which is where the story of Noah and the ark and the great flood come from, there is something quite bizarre. In those days, the sons of God, who seemed to have been angels, married human women and produced mutant children called the Nephilim. And God was clearly displeased with this because it seems to have been an attempt by rebellious fallen angels like the devil to disrupt God's good order in creation and to deface his image in human beings. And in 2 Peter, in chapter 2, verse 4, and in Jude, verse 6, we learn about angels who sinned being held in chains of darkness for the day of judgment. Now, however bizarre that sounds, Peter is referring to those days of Noah and the ark as historical events. And when he refers to the imprisoned spirits, who I assume are those fallen angels from Noah's day, he's implying that they must be real too, because Jesus went and preached, proclaimed to them. Now, what did Jesus proclaim? Well, presumably, his victory to say that all of their schemes to destroy God's image and muck up his plans were totally foiled. Instead, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are being given new life. God's image is being restored in us. And one day, the whole creation is going to be restored. The devil and all of his minions have failed. That is what Jesus was proclaiming, I think. So none of our enemies, whether human or spiritual, can stop Jesus bringing us home to our eternal inheritance. Our hope is secure. That's abundantly clear in verse 22, where Peter says that Jesus is at God's right hand, that is, at the ultimate seat of power over all the universe, equal with the Father himself. Every single spiritual power is subject to Jesus. There is nothing they can do to stop him saving his people. So our hope in him is utterly secure. Now that might not seem like a big deal to some of us, because most of us don't think much about spiritual evil in the secular West. But I wonder, have you, have you ever considered why is it that whole continents such as Europe can become 
so blind to so many things that are true, so convinced that we only live once, so convinced that rampant materialism is where we're going to find happiness, so convinced that our choices don't have consequences in this life, never mind the next, that our biology, chemistry, and, and physics, on the one hand, can explain everything, including meaning and morality, but then, on the other hand, in a, a stunning contradiction, they can't determine a single thing about our personal identity. We have to look within for that. And even then, the myriad of truth claims that emerge are so incompatible with each other that they don't solve anything. They just lead to more conflict and insecurity. Haven't you ever stepped back to consider what a mess secular culture is? It didn't just get there through human rejection of God, though that was pretty key. It's been quietly aggravated and engineered by the devil. The arch-deceiver, who Peter goes on to warn us about in chapter 5. And even in a society like ours that was once so strongly influenced by Christianity, not, not in every way, but in some ways very strongly, even here he has wreaked havoc. So it is very, very good news that Jesus is so utterly victorious over him and over his angels. We see his victory now in part, but when he returns, we will see it in full. And in the meantime, he's given us baptism as a sign of that hope. You may have noticed how Peter likens baptism to Noah's flood in verse 21. And just as Noah and his family passed safely through the waters of judgment into a, a new life of sorts, so every believer in Jesus has passed through God's judgment. We've risen to new life with Jesus by the Spirit. We are being transformed from the inside out. And Jesus has given baptism as a precious symbol of what has happened, what is happening. In fact, you'll notice that Peter says baptism isn't just a nice symbol. He says in verse 21 that it saves you. Baptism contributes to your salvation somehow, which is perhaps not so, surprising, not so surprising when Peter views salvation as an ongoing process, something we are in the process of receiving. That's clear in chapter 1, verse 9. It's not something that will be finished until we reach heaven. The moment that we put our trust in Jesus is not the end of the story. And so baptism forms part of our salvation when it is undertaken with genuine faith. Without faith, it doesn't really mean much. It's an empty ritual. It's powerless to save. The water itself doesn't automatically bring about spiritual life. When Peter says that it's not about the removal of dirt from the body, he's indicating that water only affects the outside of us. It doesn't cleanse or change the heart within, which is where all of our sin comes from. 
But if you look at the NIV footnote, um, E, letter E, Peter says that baptism saves you as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. An appeal to God for a clear conscience. That's how it saves us. Um, some other Bible versions go with that reading. Some commentators do. It's the one that makes most sense to me. And I think what it means is this. If we undertake baptism as an appeal to God to, to cleanse our consciences, seeking assurance that our guilt and shame has been taken away through Jesus' suffering, then God is only too happy to oblige. So baptism isn't just a sign of death and new life through our faith in Jesus. It is God's seal of approval on that faith. It is God saying, yes, your faith has saved you, and I honor your faith, and you are secure. To sum up, if you're a Christian, you can be totally secure in your hope in Christ. And you can, if you've been baptized, look back on the day of your baptism as a source of great comfort. As the day that you received that assurance from God that your conscience is clear because you are totally forgiven for all of the guilt and shame of sin. If you've not been baptized and you do believe, I'd really encourage you to get baptized as soon as possible and talk to me about it afterwards. Peter says it is part of your salvation. And although some individuals certainly entered heaven without being baptized, like the uh, criminal crucified next to Jesus in Luke 23 who was repentant on his, on his deathbed, as it were, that was because he didn't have opportunity to be baptized. If you have the opportunity and you refuse it, you are disobeying the command of Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 27. And you are refusing God's seal of approval on your faith. So although we're ultimately saved by faith and not by works, you may need to ask serious questions about the reality of your faith if you don't want to obey one of Jesus' most beautiful and affirming commands. Please speak to me afterwards if that's you, or to Matt or one of the other elders. We've seen something of our hope and how secure it is. Secondly, and more briefly from here, how do we show the hope that we have? How do we show that hope? This is Peter's main focus in verses 8 to 17. And we show our hope, we live out our identity as a royal priesthood and holy nation by how we treat others. How we treat others. And firstly, it's by how we treat believers in verse 8. If we genuinely believe that other Christians are God's special possession and co-heirs with us to the gift of eternal life, the people that we're going to spend the rest of eternity with, how can we not love them as our own, very own brothers and sisters? 
That's the kind of love Peter has in view, brotherly, sisterly love. We don't have to particularly click with them or be the same age as them or have the same life experiences or the same hobbies. We don't even have to particularly like everything about them. Any of us who have uh, biological brothers or sisters probably know that that is true of them also. There are probably lots of things about them that annoy us. But still, we love them when the family is working well. And we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way. To look out for them, caring for them, showing kindness as siblings would when families are working at their best. In a strong family, the needs and the opinions of your siblings will often carry more weight than those of other people, than friends or neighbours or colleagues. And that's because the blood relationship demands a higher degree of loyalty, certainly in some cultures, even if not so much in ours today. And as we saw in 2 verse 17 last week, the family of believers commands a higher degree of loyalty for the Christian than anyone else except God. Why is that? Because we are blood relatives. In chapter 1, verse 19, it said, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So we should be ready to go out of our way for each other, to comfort when someone is grieving or suffering, and to take the time to walk with them through that, even if it means we start to feel their pain and suffer their suffering ourselves. That is what being sympathetic in verse 8 means. It means co-suffering, suffering with someone. This kind of brotherly, sisterly love also means that we practically help, help practically when someone is struggling to pay the bills or needs helpers packing up their stuff to move house or is stranded at the airport and can't get a lift home. Even if we think they should have seen the trouble coming and, I don't know, saved up more money for that eventuality, we still help because being compassionate means having a tender heart, easily moved by the struggles and suffering of others. And this kind of love means that we encourage someone whose faith is weak and we gently rebuke those who are hardening their hearts because we want their highest good. We want them to grow up in their salvation, as Peter said in 2 verse 2, and to be met with praise and glory and honor on the day that Christ is revealed because they've persevered in the faith and haven't given up. And finally, brotherly or sisterly love means humbly putting our differences aside so that we are like-minded, Peter says. Why is that? Well, it's because we are fellow citizens in God's holy nation. And we have a holy priestly calling to intercede for a broken world and be mediators of God's mercy to it. So we should all be pulling in the same direction. We should be working together as ambassadors of our king and country to win over a skeptical world, holding out the hope that we have. 
unless the clear teaching of scripture is at stake, we put our differences aside for the sake of that mission and calling. Now, as I've said before, I think MRC is pretty good at many of these things. And it's something I'm deeply thankful for and have felt very privileged to witness. But I'm also conscious that a lot of us are struggling or worn out at the moment, as I've already said. I'm conscious that we might feel more insecure too because the future can look very uncertain at the moment, especially given the state of our nation. So perhaps we need to hear what Peter is saying to us more than ever. It would be so easy to give up on this kind of love, wouldn't it? So easy to stop making the effort to care for others in their suffering. So easy to stop seeking reconciliation or forgiveness when we felt hurt by someone else in church. So easy to let frustrations build up and boil over. And so easy to stop pulling together in the mission of the church to retreat into our comfort zones. But if we can hold on to our gospel hope, that hope that is so secure, if we can pray for God to strengthen us, to move us, to keep loving each other, perhaps more deeply than ever, in times like these, isn't that going to be a powerful witness to anyone who gets a glimpse of what is going on in this church family? Aren't they going to see hope displayed there? Isn't it possible they will ask the reason for that hope? Now, at this point, we could say a lot about our response to non-Christians when they harm us, how we're called to repay blessing and do good when they do evil to us. That is a vitally important part of our witness. It's probably, if we can do it well, even more remarkable than the way we love each other. I've chosen to focus on verse 8, and I'm not really going to say much about verses 9 to 13 today. Partly just because I, I sense verse 8 is what we probably need most at the moment. And partly because we've already heard something about suffering for doing good and non-retaliation in chapter 2, and we're going to hear more about it in chapter 4. So for now, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to move on to our final point. And that is, how do we answer for the hope we have? Peter gives us great reasons for hope. He assumes in verse 15 that our hope will be obvious to those around us. And he's right, isn't he? If we can love each other like he commands, if we can resist the desire for revenge when people harm or insult us, we're going to stand out like a sore thumb, but in a good way. People will be intrigued. They will want to ask the reason. And that is something we should pray for daily. That's perhaps something of what is... Jesus had in mind in the Lord's Prayer when he says, you'll pray that your kingdom come, your will be done. 
when, we, when people voluntarily ask us questions about our faith, they are usually far more open to what we've got to say than when we've forced the conversation, aren't they? So that is something to pray for. But it's also something to prepare for. Peter says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have. And so I wonder if I can encourage a little exercise. Next time you have a, a quiet 15 minutes, um, which I don't know how realistic that is for some of us at the moment, but next time it happens, um, why not sit down with a cuppa and a notepad and try to write out the one or two or three things that most fill you with hope about Jesus. Perhaps it's the thing that makes you most willing to look a fool for him when you're faced with an unbelieving world, a skeptical world. Perhaps it's the thing that makes you most willing to sacrifice for him in the way that you love or serve or give. Try writing down, what, why do you think it's worth it? Why do you have this hope? And if you really struggle to do that kind of thing on your own, why not do it around the meal table with your family or your housemates? Or why not do it over coffee after church with whoever you end up talking to? I'm, I'm certainly going to put it in the home group questions for this week. If we can help each other, asking each other that question, why do you have hope in Jesus then? If we can help each other practice articulating it and learning to say what's kind of in our hearts but perhaps maybe a bit muddled up, if we can learn to say that in a clear way, then we will be ready. And we need, we need that preparation, or most of us do, if you're anything like me, because usually in the moment what happens is that we freeze or we panic or our reaction times just aren't quick enough and we're not ready and we don't know what to say and we miss the opportunity. Certainly I do. So let's help each other prepare by asking that question or trying to write it down. Why do we have this hope in Jesus? And to finish, I'll flag up one other thing which might help with that. Um, which is our evening gathering on Sunday the 30th of October, where Johnny Ascot's going to be helping us think through how the gospel both confronts and connects with the kind of secular liberal worldview of many of the people around us in East Oxford. And that should be really helpful, just getting us to think about what it is that our neighbours really value, where their hope is, and then how we can express the gospel in, in ways that perhaps affirm their values, where those are good, but show a better foundation for them in Christ's word. It's going to help us speak in a way that engages and resonates with their hope. And that could be really valuable. So practice with each other, Practice jotting down why Jesus gives you hope. And if you can, come a week on Sunday, not a week on Sunday, next Sunday, 7 o'clock. And for now, let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that the hope, the hope you've given us is so, so clear in, in this letter from Peter. Thank you that it is so secure. Lord, thank you you've, you've given us baptism as a comfort and encouragement to remind us how secure our hope is. Lord, for any of us who are struggling to keep that hope in view at the moment, any of us who are perhaps feeling a bit confused about where our hope really lies, please help us. Please help us to, to get a firm grip on the gospel hope again. Pray that we would be a help to one another in that as we ask each other where our hope is, as we help one another to perhaps draw it back out from the depths and to, to put it into plain English. And I pray, Lord, would you help us in this difficult season to be people who are filled with hope and who therefore have the courage, the confidence, the, the willingness to love one another even when that is painful, even when that requires sacrifice, even when that requires swallowing our pride. Help us, Lord, to love one another. Help us to love those who oppose us. Help us to live in a way that displays our hope powerfully to the world around us. And we pray that people would ask. We pray that people would long to know the reason. And we pray that we would be ready when it comes. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>